Hey, good morning. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we've had folks join us from a variety of places, so wherever you find yourself, we're really glad that you took some time to spend uh, church with us, and uh, we'll worship in a bit. We'll have a little bit of teaching. Uh, just a few things that we want you to be aware of as we get into this week. Uh, such a strange time for churches and for you and for all of us as we try to figure out what's normal. And so we want to keep you connected to us here at Castle Oaks. And so most of our groups, we said this last week, are gathering through video conferencing. If you want to join in and you're just not sure how to do that, just drop us an email. We'll get connected to a group, uh, to a class, uh, to our prayer team, a variety of ways that we can keep you connected while we spend our, our time away from each other physically. No reason to be distant relationally uh, and certainly not spiritually. And so if you're not getting our emails in your inbox, drop us an email and you'll get updates like this and information that are really, really important. And so uh, one of the things that we started this past week was this uh, new deal called uh, Midweek Dessert with Josh. And so this past Wednesday night, if you tuned in, then Josh, uh, you saw him, he he, he tried one of my favorite desserts that, that I made for him on Wednesday. Uh, our very own Cindy Veith will be making uh, one of her favorite desserts for Wednesday night, and Josh will taste test that online. We'll worship a bit, share just a few thoughts with you from Scripture. The whole thing kicks off at 6.30, gets you in time for youth group or other classes that begin at 7, 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights. And so uh, 15 minutes, maybe 20 at the most, but just a touch point. We can hang out just for a few minutes uh, Wednesday nights. So one of the things that's coming up next week that we want you to be aware of, and we don't want you to miss, we'll be sharing communion together next Sunday. And we'll do it online, but we'll want you to participate at home. So right now, in, wherever you are, with whoever you're with, uh, maybe designate somebody to help you remember this little detail. And uh, this week, when you're doing one of your essential errands, uh, make a stop at a local store and pick up some elements you can pick up some juice. You probably have some wine at home. Uh, you know, we don't have real wine with our communion here at Castle Oaks when we gather, but you could sure do that at the house, um, bread or a cracker or whatever it is that you would like. So have those elements ready, and we'll walk through it together as a family, and then you can do it at home with you uh, by yourself or whoever you live with or your entire family. And so that's next Sunday. Keep that in mind. Uh, just to remind you of the church calendar, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and then, of course, we'll celebrate Easter. Same service times that we're engaged in right now, 10 a.m. So get ready for that. And so now, as we kind of engage with this morning, our hope is that while you worship at home, while you're not used to doing this, maybe you're used to a larger crowd and hearing everybody sing, maybe you'll just read the lyrics and ponder them, but let's engage in this and allow these few moments together to allow us to just think hard about who God is, where he's leading us, what we're experiencing, and how he wants to shape us, each of us, individually, and our families, and our church through this time. Let's worship together. Awesome. Thanks, Pastor. Hey, church, wherever you are today, uh, let's sing, let's worship together. Before we get started, let's pray wherever you're at. Let's, uh, let's do that together. Lord, we love you. Um, we honor you with this this time, we honor you, God, with everything that we do. Um, we ask God that um, in the midst of uh, seems a crazy world, Lord, that um, your goodness will shine through, God. It's still, your gospel has never changed. Your gospel is still the same. And God, we worship you, God, because you're deserving of the praise. 
We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. I was buried beneath my shame. Come on, sing. Who could carry? Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb till I met you. I was breathing, and I was breathing, but not. failures I tried to hide it was my tomb till I met you when you call you called my
So I don't know if you, I don't know what it's like for y'all out there. We're kind of here. There's, there's, there's like six people in the room, so it's different, right? <laughs> um, but we want to do this together as much as we can. So I want to encourage you, if you're home there today, come on, let's sing together. Uh, you might not be able to hear your neighbor singing, and maybe that's a good thing this morning, right? But let's, let's just take this time to continue and to sing to our Savior. Come now, found. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me some sung by flaming tongues above praise a mountain fixed upon it mount to thy redeeming love here I raise here I raise my Ebenezer hither by thy help I Thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. And Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. yet pursues me how your mercy it never fails me till the day that death shall lose me Never fails me to the day that 
The roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Oh, it's still true. Come on, let's sing. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body, it began to burn. Jesus, 
who was and still is and will be through it all. Oh, so come what may, no matter what. Yeah. So come what may in the space between all the things unseen and this reckoning. I know, I know. some hope and some peace all over our community, all over this nation, God. God, you're still on the throne. You're still in control. No matter how I feel, maybe I feel lonely, maybe I feel lost. The promises are true that you still sit on the throne, God. You still fight for us, and you're still with us. We just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for Josh and for what he does. Uh, so much of what we're doing right now is because he's worked so hard on the technology end and getting things happening. and. Uh, Josh and I, uh, even though the staff and I aren't seeing a lot of each other these days, I'm seeing a little more of Josh than, than maybe uh, most, and so I'm really grateful for who he is. The staff's working hard for you, whether they're doing it from here at church or at home. Uh, Debbie and Diana and, and Deb Statter and, of course, Cindy Veith is, is here quite often. 
Um, they're just working hard to, to get things done, and so we're grateful. I guess the thing that's on my mind this morning, especially after worship and hearing a few things Josh shared, um, gosh, we, we just miss you. We miss seeing you. And on a normal Sunday, of course, we get a chance to, to greet each other, share a hug, uh, maybe a story or two, uh, tiny updates, and I miss that a lot. Um, we're getting some of that through, uh, through Zoom or, or teleconferencing or, or you know, emails and texts and things like that, but there's nothing like being in somebody else's presence, and, uh, and I miss that. There's a day coming, a day soon, hopefully sooner than later, when we'll gather again in this place and we'll get to worship together and we'll be face-to-face. And so I pray about that day and long for that day. And when we began this series called The Road, we we had no idea what kind of road we would be on. We had no idea how long it would be from the time when we began it to the time when we would wrap it up or finish it. We've called it a Lent series, um, but we're approaching the end of Lent. And I have a feeling we'll just stay in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll, of course, talk about uh, Palm Sunday and, and resurrection, but I think we'll just stay in the Gospel of Luke, maybe until we gather again and uh, no promises on any of that, but I think that's, that's where we'll be. This road that Jesus is on, the, the things that we're talking about in this series, when Jesus begins to set out resolutely toward Jerusalem, is how Luke puts it, uh, he just sets his gaze toward Jerusalem. He begins to make his way south, all the way from the northern region of Galilee. Uh, he ends up going around Samaria because he wasn't welcome there. They knew he was a Jew and We'll talk about this today. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. They despised each other. It wasn't just a one-way hatred. And Jesus begins to make his way. And Luke records many conversations and parables and all kinds of things that happen. Last week, we talked about Mary and Martha and what it means to just be patient and to wait and to be in God's presence. And now we'll talk about one more thing that occurred in this same chapter. In fact, we're going backwards just a little bit. Luke chapter 10, this is what Luke says. On one occasion, there was an expert in the law, and he stood up to test Jesus. Remember, that was his reason. And he asked this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his question is our question. His question is the question that we all ask sometimes more than others, and maybe through a difficult season like this, we're asking it more introspectively. Why am I here? What's my purpose? When things like work or maybe normal routines or regular relationships get taken away from us, we begin to ask questions about what God is up to and how we fit in that deal, how we fit in his plan or his story. What's my path? I want my life to matter. I want what I do to extend beyond eternity. And the reason you feel that way is because God created you that way. God created you, and, and uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says he has set eternity in your heart. In other words, you have this innate, built-in understanding that you were made for more than what you can touch and see and feel. And so at times like this, we yearn for that other and the thing that matters the most. And so how do we find it? The story is going to help us find it. And so this guy who stands up, st- stands up to test Jesus, he's an expert in the law. And let's talk just a little bit about what the law is. He's referring to what Jewish people would normally call the Torah. It's the, the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
and Deuteronomy, the Torah, or the Pentateuch, lots of names for it. But this man was an expert in it. In other words, he understood these five books incredibly well, extremely well. Probably as a young man being taught by some local rabbi, he would have memorized, completely committed to memory, those first five books. And he would have learned it, of course, in the original language, in Hebrew. It would have been the best language he understood well. Now, as a young man growing up in first century Jerusalem, he also knew Greek. This would be the language that he would speak, but the language of Hebrew would have been just as common to him because he knew the law. And his assumption is this, as an expert in the law, that if there's an answer to that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or we might even say it this way, what must I do to make my life matter since it's going to last forever? This would be the Jewish phrasing of that question. If he's going to answer that question, then it's in the Torah. The answer is there. Now, before we go any further, let me ask you this question. Just as a family, this guy is an expert in the law. Here's something for you to ponder and maybe kind of quiz each other about, you know, after the sermon's over. Don't do it now, but later. What are you an expert about? There's somebody in your family who's an expert about something. In fact, all of you are an expert about something around the house or something in your family. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter how old you are, if you're old enough to understand what I'm saying at the moment, um, or maybe even much older than that, you're an expert in something. Maybe ask this later. What are you an expert about? Everyone in your family is an expert at something. Now, you may not think it means really that you're an expert, but you do. You know the most about it. When I was raising the boys, Donna and I, when we had our family at home, the boys were growing up, they were always experts about something. Sometimes we had an expert about Legos. Every now and then we had a Star Wars expert in the house. We had an expert that understood exactly how much cheese is supposed to go on a pizza. We had an expert that understood a little something about riding a unicycle. We had an expert about homeschooling in our house. So find it out because you're all needed to make this time of, of quarantine and stay-at-home orders better and more thoughtful, and it will help if you bring whatever you're an expert about to the table because you're needed, you're a part of the deal, you're a part of the community. So what is it? So the man asked a question. He asked this question, teacher, he asked of Jesus, a rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus asks him a question back. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? This was normal for a rabbi. This was typical for a rabbi who wanted to engage his students. And because the man inquires of Jesus first, he's establishing just at least a momentary relationship with Jesus. I want to know what your answer is. But Jesus, like a good rabbi, or really any good teacher, he asks this question back. And when you read the Gospels, here's what you'll notice. Jesus does this all the time. And the reason he does it is because he wants to know what's underneath the surface a little bit. And he can't get there. He can't really understand what's going on in this man's heart or what's even going on in the setting around him unless he asks some questions back. And so Jesus often famously uses this approach with people and he'll do it with you and your relationship with him 
If you're listening to the Spirit, if you're paying attention to how God is leading you, you may sense him often asking you questions in return. That's who he is. And that's who we're to be with each other. In fact, my guess is you're asking questions of each other through this time as a family, as a couple, or even somebody who's going through this feeling a bit more alone. Good questions will help you find your way with each other. And so think of some good questions that you can ask each other this week. Maybe even write them down someplace where you can go back and refer to them because you get busy and you forget about what's going on. Maybe some questions like this. What do you miss most about school? What do you miss most about work? What do you miss about our normal and regular routines? Maybe some questions that might take you back to a couple of messages that we preached over the last two weeks. What are you worried about? What are you anxious about? What do you fear? These are questions that will help you get to the root. This is why Jesus does this with this man. And he asks him the very simple question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you see it? He wants to know what this man thinks and how he sees. And so the man gives an answer. Here's what he says. He answered, this man, this expert in the law, we don't know his name, He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty interesting what he does. The man, of course, because he's an expert in the law, he goes to what he knows, and he quotes two verses from the Torah. The first comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the love your Lord your God. Every Jewish man and woman would know this verse well. In fact, these set of verses that comprise... Uh, A few verses, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's called the Shema. Uh, Jewish men and women know it. It's probably the very first verses they would have learned in the Hebrew Bible from the moment they could remember anything more than their name. Every Jewish man and woman would have recited this at least twice a day. Very specific time set aside for them. A lot of them had it written down on a piece of paper in the original Hebrew, of course, and they would have kept it with them in a, what's called a phylactery, a little box that they would attach to either their wrist or their arm or their forehead, and it would be written on the door frames of their houses, and it included this phrase that the man quotes to Jesus. So it's no surprise at all that he would have said, love the Lord your God with everything that you have. This was the center of what it means to know God. And that's true, not just of Jewish men and women, but of us, followers of Jesus today. And so he answers with this quote from Deuteronomy, but then he pulls something out of Leviticus, really kind of obscure, actually, Leviticus, and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is interesting that he would pair these two together. And when he does so, he gives, really, a compelling answer for what it means to inherit eternal life. Now, When I read this, I think back to the times that I was in class and the teacher called on me to give an answer. So let let me ask you, you could even um, talk about this openly in your living rooms or kitchens or wherever you're watching this. When you were in school, were you likely to raise your hand? When the teacher wanted to find out who knew the answer to a question, were you the kind of person that sat quietly hoping you would never get called on? That was me. Or were you somebody that would shoot your hand up immediately and hope that you would either be called on to answer a question 
or called on to go to the front, write something on the board, or do something, which were you? Where do you find yourself? I always found myself in the classroom waiting and watching, hoping nobody would notice me, hoping nobody would call on me. And if I would get called on, or even the moment where I think that could happen, I would get hot and warm and nervous. I remember one time, I was in a geometry class, and in this geometry class, I don't remember what the question was, but of course I sat there quiet, no hands raised, hoping the class session would just move on, me staying invisible, but the teacher called my name. And when she did, I couldn't believe it, but I knew the answer. I don't remember the question, but the answer was the Pythagorean theorem. And the only reason I knew this answer is because my dad's an engineer and he had drilled it into us a time or two, a few things about math and science, and this was one of the things that I happened to know. What was great about this particular moment is I was in this geometry class and there was a young woman in this class as well, a young student that I wanted to impress. Her name was Donna. And of course, I would say to the boys, and that's how I met your mother. But that's not really true. We had met before that. So in this moment, I knew the answer and hoping it would impress her it was the only time. Now, the, the embarrassing part about this story is I was a senior and she was a sophomore and we were in the same math class, which if you know both of us is not a surprise that she uh, is a math uh, person and I am not. And so in this moment, I knew the answer. This man, he knew the answer. Deuteronomy, a verse from Leviticus, and he pulls them together when Jesus the rabbi says... How do you read the law? And in that moment, Jesus looks at him and says, you have answered correctly. Can you imagine what that felt like? When this happened, can you imagine being in front of Jesus, other people nearby, Jesus asks him a question, and he gives an answer, and Jesus says, you have answered correctly. It's true. In fact, it's so true, Jesus meant what he said. Of course it's correct. There's another, other, another mo- time in the Gospels when Jesus is asked the very same thing about the most important commandments, and he gives the same answer that this man gave to him. These two verses summarize the totality, the entirety of the law. And that was great. But it wasn't enough for this man. In fact, after Jesus says this, Luke records but he wanted to justify himself. Now, remember, why did he ask this question to begin with? He asked the question because he wanted to test Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus knows this, but Jesus is gentle with him. Jesus doesn't call him out. Jesus engages in a normal conversation with him. Jesus doesn't embarrass him, but Jesus wants to take him a little bit further as a Jewish man. In fact, Jesus knows what's in his heart, and he knows where his prejudices are. He knows who he favors, and he knows who he despises as a Jewish man. And he wants to take his understanding of love and transform it. This is probably at least one of the things that God is doing with us through this pandemic, through this exercise, through this Time in our lives where we're asking questions, how long will this last? What can we expect? What will normal look like on the other side of it? God is always up to something in the middle of difficulty and in the middle of wonderful things. And at least one of the things he's usually up to is this. He wants to transform our understanding of love. What does it look like? How does it work? Practically speaking, 
How do we display it? How do we engage in it? And that's what he's doing with this man. And so Jesus is going to hear him say, as he justifies this important question, well, let me try to catch you in this as a test, but Jesus doesn't take the bait. He just tells a story. Here's the story that Jesus tells. And it's one that most of us might be familiar with. Jesus begins to tell this story. A man, probably a Jewish man, of course, his audience is Jewish. It would be assumed this is a Jewish man. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And we don't have a map in front of us, but if we did, you would see that Jericho was really sort of north and just a little bit east of Jerusalem. Why would Jesus say a man is going down? Well, Jerusalem sits on a ridge, higher elevation than Jericho, and literally the road, about 18 miles long from Jerusalem to Jericho, goes down. And it goes down from this ridge that Jerusalem sits on all the way down into what is the beginning of the Dead Sea Valley. Desert, it's desolate, it's a tough road to walk, it's difficult, of course, harder to come up to Jerusalem, but it's still not a pleasant path. And this man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's just going about his business. He's just taking care of his life. This may have been what he did every day, maybe one or two times a week. Who knows? Maybe he lived in Jericho. Maybe he had friends there, family. But he is just going about his business the same way you are when you're commuting to work, headed to the grocery store, dropping off kids at school. This is his normal life. But while he's making his way down, something happens. As he's going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was attacked by robbers. We don't have any idea why. We don't understand what occurred or what they're looking for, but this man falls in among thieves. It's just an average day for him, but this average day turned into something unexpected. This unexpected moment is what Jesus is going to use to teach us. Now, no one plans on this. No one gets up and says, well, see, I've got to make my commute. I've got to head down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've got to go on that path, and I've got to deal with the robbers. Nobody adds this into their schedule. Nobody thinks that this will be a part of their day when they begin, and it happens unexpectedly. When unexpected things happen to us, it usually is troubling and difficult, throws us off course makes us realign our priorities and figure out what we're going to do next. When we thought we had a plan, the plan is now gone. Everything is upended. And it's very unsettling and causes us often to make mid-course corrections. That's what happened to this man. It's unexpected. Last week, Don and I were doing a few errands. We, one place, had gone in to do some shopping, take care of a few things, And then we came out and saw our car, and we thought it was our car. It didn't look like our car. And the reason it didn't look like our car is because the passenger side door was essentially destroyed. And the more I look at the vehicle, I realize, oh, that is our car. Something's happened to it. Immediately, of course, we're thinking, what what happened? What occurred? Where where is the person that did this? And now our plan is upended. Thankfully, on the car was a note right under the windshield wiper. And my fear, of course, is I'm going to walk up and get this note that says, well, I hit your car and people are watching me and so I'm writing a note, but I'm not going to tell you who I am. That's what I thought. I mean, you know, we're suspicious, right? But thankfully the note gave the gentleman's name and 
car, make and model, and phone number. And then, of course, we thought, well, maybe it's not the right number. Oh, our suspicious hearts. And so we called the man. But, of course, our plan now is upended. Now we have to make arrangements. We have to get a repair done. We need a rental car. We have to deal with an insurance company, whether it's ours or his. It doesn't matter. It wasn't part of our plan for the week because it was unexpected. And so now we need help. Help getting some things done. That's what happened to the man, attacked by robbers. It wasn't just that. Jesus gives us some more details. They stripped him off his clothes and beat him and went away, and they left him half dead. Just like us in that parking lot, just like this man, just like you right now. When the unexpected happens in our life, we usually need help of some kind. This man needs help. We needed help. And my guess is during this pandemic and these uneasy times, you need help too. What kind of help do you need? Where do you find yourself searching for solutions? It could be something material. It could be something emotional, spiritual. But my guess is over the last few weeks, there's been at least a few moments when you've needed some help. Maybe just a vent. Maybe just knowing that somebody is with you, that somebody understands. Maybe you need somebody praying for you. Maybe you need something that you couldn't find at the grocery store. What kind of help do you need? This man needed help. And my guess is you do too. So Jesus as he continues the story, well, he's going to try to bring some help into the picture of the narrative. The first person that comes along, a priest, happened to be going down the same road. Now, there are two people that are involved in, in not helping, of course, initially in this story. One is a priest and one is a Levite. So let me give you some context about who they are and what's happening in their world. Okay? These two people, they come from a certain family in the big Jewish family tree. So if you imagine the Jewish family tree, it all starts from a man named Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and from those 12 sons in Jacob's family tree are 12 branches. We call them the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes is named after one of Jacob's sons. His name was Levi, and maybe you recognize at least part of that as being connected to the Levites. Well, that who's, that's who's coming along next. But a priest and a Levite are involved in this story, and they were the religious caretakers of the Jewish family. They are the ones that tended to the issues in the temple and worship. They were the ones who mediated and went into the Holy of Holies and helped people understand who God was. They were the ones who knew the law better than anyone else. It's, it's no mistake that Jesus uses these two people as illustrations of what not to do in this story. The assumption, of course, is that if you know the law, if you understand God better, then you obviously know how to behave better. And this is rarely the case. Often knowledge doesn't translate into a transformed heart. In fact, this is a, a meta message, a core message of the Gospels, that there were people who should have understood that a Messiah was coming, who Jesus was, how he was coming into the picture of God's big story, and many of them, not all of them, but many of them, missed it, even though they had all of the information, all of the prophecies, all of the knowledge, but none of the understanding. And so when Jesus now tells the story about what it means to be a neighbor, 
the two people that don't know how to treat others well, well, they come from the tribe of Levi. One is a priest who is also a Levite, but then just then your garden variety Levite. Here's how to understand this. All of the Levites come from the tribe of Levi, and they had some temple duties. A subset of the Levites, some of the most special or knowledgeable or more devout Levites, designated as priests inside that tribe. And the first one to come along is a priest. He sees the man, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, this road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, 18 miles it's a pretty tough road. You can walk it today. Many people go on that same journey that Jesus described today as a bit of a sojourn. And when you do, you'll realize that it's not wide. It's not like I-25. It's not even like many of the paths that some of us walk. Some of it's very narrow. And Jesus understood this. And when Jesus says he passed by the other side, some in the audience who have walked this road would have chuckled because to walk on the other side would have meant Essentially, that you would maybe have a foot or two apart away from this injured man, but more than likely, he still would have had to step over him. He saw him, and he kept walking. Of course, the next person is a Levite. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. Now, before we're too hard on the priest and the Levite, let's at least be honest about ourselves. What are the reasons that they could have done this? Why would they have passed by a man that was injured and on the road? And of course, they know what the scriptures say about compassion and helping and caring, but they decided today is not that day. Well, you could think of a few reasons of your own why you pass by somebody who's in need. You're in a hurry, you don't have time, Maybe you don't have the resources, you have something to do, you need to get to some place. What would be the reasons? For the priest and the Levite, they would have had other reasons as well, and we could maybe imagine those. Some of them come straight from the law. If the Levite or the priest is going to stop and help this man who's probably bloody, who's probably hurting, then they would have become unclean. It's a whole thing in the Bible, and it would have meant that they would have had to go through a whole ceremonial process. Maybe they're late for their duties as a priest or a Levite, and that would have meant that they couldn't fulfill the very thing that God had them intended. You could think of a thousand different reasons why. But when Jesus tells this story, neither of them stop to help. When this occurs, we're reminded that the unexpected is right there in front of them. Not only was it unexpected for this man to be injured and hurt, taken in by robbers and beat and stripped and left for a dead, it's also unexpected that this would have been the experience of the priest or the Levite. I mean, they were on, on their journey too. While they're going down this road, they didn't expect that they would find somebody. They didn't think, on my day, here's what I need to do. I need to get to the temple, and you go down that road, I need to pick up uh, the supplies for communion. This is what I need to do. I need to fix the man who's bloodied and beaten. No, no, this is not a part of their agenda. It's unexpected. This happens to me and you as well. Whenever we see someone in need, someone who is hurting, somebody who doesn't have what they need to get through the day, it's usually unexpected for us. And so in this story, there are people who need 
help. But there are also people who can give help. In fact, for this story to even work, as Jesus tells it, both are essential. There are people who need help, and there are people who can give help. And so now Jesus makes a turn in the story that nobody would have expected. And the truth is, in our culture today, is probably near impossible for us to understand the impact that this would have had on the listener. But we can try, and it's important that we get there a little bit. Then a despised Samaritan came along. As I said at the beginning of the service, uh, Jewish men and women and Samaritan men and women, they hated each other. I know that's a hard word and we shouldn't use the word hate, but this best describes the relationship between these two groups of people. The Jewish people believed that Samaritans were sellouts, that they had intermarried and that they didn't take the laws very seriously, and so they were kind of segregated in their own little section of geography, and they did not The Jewish people did not believe that the Samaritans were still called by God, chosen by God, favored by God. They believed that God had turned their back on the Samaritan people, and the Jewish people believed that they should too. So Jewish men and women were not allowed to marry Samaritans. Samaritans, of course, returned that exact same feeling to Jewish people. This wasn't a one-way feeling. Samaritans believe that the Jews were pious and proud, and of course we know that God opposes the proud. In fact, the Samaritans have just as many spiritual reasons to dislike the Jewish people as the Jewish people had to dislike the Samaritans. The enmity and the hate went both ways, and it was deep, and it was solid. And Jesus makes this Samaritan the hero of the story. Then a despised Samaritan came along. It's not just ironic, it's unthinkable. Add to this the fact that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it comes along the bottom edge of Samaria, the closer you get to Jericho. And so it is likely that it was a Samaritan group of robbers that perpetrated this offense to this Jewish man. In fact, they were the ones likely to make this happen, not the ones likely to help. But Jesus tells it differently, and he tells his story to catch us off guard. So maybe you have a bit of the feeling now. A Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. This is a great word. It's an incredible Greek word, very difficult to say. But here's what the word compassion means in this context. It means that this Samaritan saw the man, and when he saw the man, remember the priest saw him, the Levite saw him, now the Samaritan comes along and sees him. When he sees him, he felt troubled in his gut. Have you ever felt that way? Usually it is because we don't like what's about to happen to us. But when Jesus tells this story, the Samaritan sees what happened to this man, and he felt, maybe even a better translation is this, just a little bit sick in his stomach. And this sickness, this feeling, this troubled gut, well, the Greeks translated it compassion. This inescapable feeling that something isn't right. It's it's the essence of empathy And Jesus attributes attributes this essence of empathy to a Samaritan person. And so he feels it. And when he feels it, this is what he does. He felt compassion for him, and so then he went 
and he bandaged his wounds. This is different. The compassion is a feeling, and you felt that too. But then this compassion, this feeling, is translated into this action. Now, don't forget the question that we're dealing with. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how do I have a life that matters and that counts because I'm here for eternity? And that question is now dealing with the underlying question, how do I treat other people? Or, in the words of this parable, the question the expert in the law asked, who is my neighbor? You know what the man is asking. Who do I need to love? And this word love, well, it's the Greek word agape. It's the way God loves you. It isn't a sentimental love. It's not... It's not a a love that is just uh, emotional in nature. It's always a love that is translated into action. This is what agape is. It is a practical love that is felt and known and understood, but it is always showing up then in something that we do, practically speaking. So he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. Jesus tells the story. You can read it for yourself in Luke 10. He He also gave the man a ride. He put him on his donkey, and he took him to an inn, and he took care of all of his wounds. As he did so, he left him at the inn in charge of the innkeeper. He paid for his stay at the inn and gave the innkeeper extra money and said, when I come back, we'll settle accounts. I want you to take care of this man. It was completely unexpected. And this is what it means to be a neighbor. This is what it means to be who Jesus is describing as somebody who is concerned with inheriting eternal life. In other words, they want their life to count because we're here forever. Compassion. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. So when you read this story, you find yourself stuck at home. Now you're interacting with people on a regular basis, people that you know and love well, and maybe you see some other needs next door or some things that are happening in your neighborhood. Here's the question that I want you to ask each other and I want, I want you to deal with as a family. And even then, as this stay-at-home order is lifted, it enlarges your circle and the number of people that you can ask this to. Some of you are still working, and you're engaged with workers in a place where you are leaving your house and taking care of business, whether you're working in essential business or healthcare workers. Here's the question I want you to ask, and I want you to ask it often. How can I help? It's very simple. Don't wait for a chore chart and your turn to come up. Don't wait for somebody to direct you. I mean, I know we can often try to fly under the radar because there's so much that needs to be done. This is agape love at its finest. When we ask this question, how can I help? What can I do? Compassion for what needs to be done. Maybe you don't feel that when you walk into the kitchen and you see the mess. Compassion can grow when we ask this question. Sometimes our desire to help increases when we do the action of helping. So ask the question. Doesn't matter how old you are, five or six in your home, 10, 11, 12, 30, 40, 50. How can I help? And remember, the essence of this parable has two important things that come together. There are people, when the unexpected happens, when the unexpected occurs in our life, There are two things that are always showing up. There are people who can help. How can I help? And there are people 
who need help. And my guess is there are some people in your family who need to do the second part, who need to learn what it means to accept help. Some of you, helping comes as natural as breathing. And so you're always looking around, how can I help? Some of you feel responsible as parents trying to keep the household running. You're always trying to figure out how you can help. In fact, you believe it's just expected that if the household falls apart or if everybody's not getting along, that it's your responsibility. So you're trying to manage the chaos and help all the time. And some of you need to learn to accept help. And of course, that only works if there's people in proximity to you that are asking this question, how can I help? This is what Paul says when he describes what it means to live out agape love. And he says it this way, carry each other's burdens. And in doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is what agape love is. This is what it means to love your neighbor. And sometimes your neighbor is your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your boss, your direct report, your coworker. How can I help? And some of you can exercise this muscle this week of learning to accept help. Look, when we live this way, when we understand what it means to help each other and accept help, then God knits us together in ways that he could never have done before. It isn't God's design that you would be independent. It's God's design that you would be interdependent on each other, finding your way together. And this is our hope, and this is our prayer. So I'm going to lead you through a bit, just a moment of prayer, and maybe you can reflect on which of these you need to lean into this week. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for our body, Castle Oaks, and all those who are spread about and in different places who are worshiping maybe from different states or maybe they find themselves uh, someplace that they didn't expect and they can't quite make it home just yet. And all those in our Castle Rock area and neighborhood, I pray for each one of them and I pray that as they go through this trying, strange, and interesting time, that you would give them the courage, some of them, to accept the help that's right in front of them. And I pray that you would give all of us the compassion to frequently ask the question, how can we help? What needs to be done? Lord, we know that families, church families, and nuclear families, they work best when we all do our part. And so I know that there are moms and dads and teenagers and kids that are stretched beyond their absolute limits. Some are trying to figure out homeschooling and are thrown into the middle of a mess. Some are trying to figure out how to get along with each other because they're spending more time together than they ever have before. Lord, we ask that your grace would be in the middle of every home and that as you lead us and guide us, we'll find our way to each other, the agape love, seeing you in the middle of it. Lord, this is our hope. And this is our prayer. Walk with us this week as we seek you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.